Tonight's scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, and he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of the jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. I mean, with this Christmas pageant, uh, weren't they amazing? Every year, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, give them a hand, yeah. They're not here, but their parents are, so that's what counts. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this whole thing, and this mercy market afterwards, people are already buying, buying stuff up. There's just like, and all the snow that we've been blessed with, it's, uh, I mean, it's really beginning to smell like Christmas. Or, I mean, wait, that's not, how's it go? It's not that quite right. I hope to smell like Christmas. It's been looking a lot like Christmas smells. Anyway, whatever the saying goes, it's like that. And this text, though, I'll move along, this reading from Isaiah always reminds me of Christmas. Always. And my Grandpa Webb. That, just that part right there, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy and waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Streams in the desert. Streams in the Desert, it was the name of a devotional book that my grandpa read every morning. If you're from a different sort of people, the devotional book is sort of like um, a morning meditation app, I guess. Yeah, a devotional book. It was called Streams in the Desert. He read it every single morning. And he would uh, take his coffee to his chair and put it on the TV tray that was always beside his chair. We'd pick up his reading glasses and put them on. And then he would uh, pick up Streams in the Desert by Mrs. Charles E. Cowman. Yes, that is the name it was originally published under in 1925. 
The author's name was Letty B. Cowman, but she published it under the name Mrs. Charles E. Cowman. Charles E. being her husband. Maybe she was a victim of a society that only attributed value to her through her husband. It was 1925. Or maybe she wanted to use his name to honor him. You see, Charles E. and Letty B. had been missionaries together serving all over the world. Charles E. had had this idea that they should personally introduce every single person on the planet to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to diminish his character by mentioning at this time that Charles E. was not an educated man. He felt it was a calling. He felt called. And he was actually able to convince some people. He raised some funds for them to, they started in their, this work, this worldwide work in Japan. He named the work the Every Creature Campaign. And he went door to door tirelessly to every creature or Japanese person. At every door, he recited the gospel, his gospel story and he laid out a plan of salvation, of personal salvation to every single one of them. And I can just picture Letty B waiting there at the curb to receive him back and to check off every address after he'd, after he'd finished. And you know what's crazy? They did it. They actually did it. They went to every single address in Japan. And then when they returned, Charles E. fell very ill from exhaustion. And he was sick, sick for six long years. Six long years before he died at their home in Chicago. And Letty B was at his bedside every single day, praying for him, caring for him. Well, after a couple years went by, Letty B. fell into a depression. The Lord had called her and Charles E. to travel the world and introduce the Lord to every single creature. And here they were. He on his deathbed and she, well, also on his deathbed, sitting there kind of just sitting there and wondering, did the Lord change his mind? Is this some kind of test? She didn't know for sure, but what she did know was that there had to be a reason. So she resolved to trust the Lord, and she decided to write a little devotional thought down every day to give her hope and understanding and the strength to continue to trust the Lord. Every day she would select an inspirational Bible verse, sometimes an inspirational quote from another extra-biblical writing. Some, she would write down some inspirational thoughts of her own and then always finish with a few rhyming lines that could carry her through, carry in her head all day. She wrote an entry for every single day of the year. And when her friends heard about this devotional book, they asked for copies. So many requests came in for it that she had several thousand published. So, and she assured her publisher that that would need a much larger run. But he told her, dear, most of your friends already have it. I can't even imagine what we're going to do with all of these. Streams in the Desert is the best-selling devotional book of all time. 
It continues to sell today, almost 100 years after its original publication. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This verse brought her comfort. And the book it spawned brought comfort, hope, and strength to millions. My grandpa, even. At least, I thought it did. Whenever I was there, I would see him reading it, and he would take notes in the small notebook that he also kept on the TV tray by his chair. And then one morning, when we were there for a Christmas visit, and I was, I was eight years old, I believe, around then, I asked him about it. I think it was Christmas Eve morning. I asked him, Grandpa, tell me about that book you read every day. Does it help you? He turned fully and looked at me, his brow was furrowed, and he said, why do you ask that? I don't know, I said, I, I just see you reading it. It's like the devotional book to help you pray and stuff. This book, he said, holding it up, his hand shaking slightly, is the key to a vast conspiracy that resulted in big oil companies infiltrating American Christianity and distorting it to use as a tool to convert our beloved country into its complete oil dependence. I was shocked. I'd never seen him so animated or heard him talk like that. Sit down, he said gesturing at the carpet in front of his chair. I sat down and looked up at him. He leaned forward with his elbows on his knees and started talking. My daddy, your great-grandpa, was out traveling around looking for work. He left my mommy and my brother Cecil, I wasn't born yet, at the farm in Missouri, and he traveled down into Texas, and there in 1901, he was there in 1901 when Spindletop hit. Spindletop was the first oil discovered in Texas, and it was big. There was instantly work everywhere. There was big oil discovered, too, in Pennsylvania, and soon in places all over the world. Now, now he knew all about this, my daddy did, because he was what you call an autodidact. Yes, that's right, autodidact. And he read everything he could get his hands on, including the reports that would come into the office at Spindletop when he would help with the payroll. And what he read there was this. There was too much oil. There was too much oil. Too much oil. Old Mr. Rockefeller, well, he owned it all, but he couldn't sell much of it. There just wasn't any demand. A few people had cars. Some people in big cities had electric lights. But no demand could keep up with the amount of oil Mr. Rockefeller had. More oil coming every day, all the time. He needed to create a demand. And so he and some other early oil barons came together at this private club of Lyman Stewart, the founder of Union Oil, and they hatched a plan. The plan was written out and made into just seven bound copies, one of which ended up in the office in, at Spindletop in Texas. My daddy read it. He read it in great astonishment. And when I was old enough, he told the story to me. Was one miraculous or malevolent, but uh, hard to believe in any sense. You see, Lyman Stewart was a very devout man, an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He was rich and generous, so he had great sway in all matters church-like. 
Well, he caught wind of some controversies coming out of the Presbyterian Seminary in New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey, that there was this split of professors over the role that Christianity plays in the world, split into two camps, the modernist camp and the fundamentalist. The modernists argued for a conscious adapt adaptation of Christianity in response to the new scientific discoveries and the moral pressures of the age. They saw a Christianity that would use the advance of science to live out the church's mission to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, to provide dignity and community, jobs and homes for everyone in need. The fundamentalists, well, they saw that science, they saw science as a challenge to Christianity. They saw it was, that science was the enemy of faith. Now, this fundamentalist, modernist controversies, they're, they're well known. Uh, and most well-known for their positions on how you interpret the Bible. The modernists advocate to continuing to read it the way that it had always been read, a book that guided their faith in light of the tradition and in light of current thought. Now, the fundamentalists, they said to combat the encroachment of science and higher, higher criticism that every word in the Bible must be taken literally a position that was quickly mocked and shown to be quite literally impossible. So when Lyman Stewart heard of this, he thought that he might have found a solution to the oil baron's demand problem. The floundering fundamentalists were desperate. They had no support, financial or otherwise. So he figured with a little bit of money and a little bit of influence, he could do with them what he wanted. He joined the fundamentalist fight. He provided them with funds, and not only funds, but he also provided them with a doctrine of his own creation that would, over time, create a demand for oil that would become a dependence, a dependence so great that the country could not survive a day without it. He supported the fundamentalists in their campaign, demand, uh, their campaign demanding a literal reading of the Bible. And even though he knew it was ridiculous, a ridiculous notion, he funded research and the printing of pamphlets and papers. And thanks to him, it became soon after that the official policy of Princeton Seminary, that the Bible must be taken literally every word. He would keep the debate raging, all the while hiring a cabal of scholars to write, publish, and proclaim his new radical doctrine. He called it personal salvation. That's right. That's right. You can't really find any notion of it in the Bible in any coherent way, and not much written on it before Lyman, the Lyman Stewart campaign. His idea was to take Christian faith that had led so many to America to live out Christianity's ideas of caring for others, loving your neighbor, and sacrificing for those in need, and turning it into a religion of personal gain, of self-love, and the sacralizing of the individual above all. Salvation would no longer include your neighbor, or your family, or your town, or your country. Salvation would be personal. Soon the oil barons and the ty business tycoons were all donating money to churches and seminary, influencing them with this new concept of personal salvation and insidiously tying it to personal wealth. And if wealth is the sign of salvation, then you better start buying things to show your wealth, like a car, 
I mean a car of your own. Forget that train. Why ride with those sinners? Get a car. And if you want to show that you've seen the light, you better get those electric lights. That's right. This conspiracy works so well that it seems crazy. Crazy to suggest that oil tycoons invented personal salvation to provide the social and theological underpinnings of our choking dependence on fossil fuels. But it's true. It's all true. My grandpa looked at me intently, and I looked at him wide-eyed, leaning back slightly. It was a lot for an eight-year-old to take in. That is why I read this book, he said, holding up streams in the desert again. Not only does this book indoctrinate millions of people every single day in the personal salvation conspiracy, but I believe it holds the proof of the conspiracy written in code. The whole story, streams in the desert. The Isaiah text is written when God's people are held as slaves in Babylon. It was a promise that God would free them and bring salvation to all of them, not individually, but together. After Spindletop in Texas, you know where the next big discovery of oil was? Iran, which is historically the Babylonian Empire. Those streams in the desert aren't water, son, they're oil. I dropped my head in despair. These were my people, my legacy, the American fundamentalists. And they had been manipulated by big oil. My people who'd had their faith stolen from them and used to imprison them in a prison of their own making. My grandpa saw my despair, and he took his hand, and he raised my chin up so I was looking at him. He said, look, look here, our people, they have good hearts. They're hard workers. And if our people believe something is right, nothing's going to stop us until it happens. If we can get that word out to every single one out there. I think we can turn this whole thing around. I mean, I don't know how this personal salvation, personal wealth, big oil conspiracy thing is going to turn out. But I have faith. You know that Isaiah goes on to say, the ransomed of the Lord shall be returned and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy will be on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. And it seemed like the decorated tree behind me caught his eye, and he said, Merry Christmas. Thank you.